This is the Command Your Brand podcast, where we talk to world changers, visionaries, and founders, people that are doing big things and changing this planet in a positive way. We're learning their stories, techniques, and exactly what you need to know so that you can do things in a big way. The time is now. Get ready to take command of your brand. up everybody jeremy here and guys i'm very excited for the interview we have with us today we have sahaj sharda with us today and we're going to be looking at his brand new book the college cartel which i'm very excited about because as you guys know i've been hitting on education for years i think it's something we need to look at differently i think even how we conduct it should be different but the thing i think that is interesting and one of the things we're going to get into today is how elite schools actually function a big way around price fixing and things like that so i'm really excited to dive into this so sahaj thanks for hanging out with me today man First of all, thank you so much for having me on, Jeremy. I'm really excited for this conversation. And we were sort of speaking before we started recording about some of your background with some of these issues and how you wanted to be a university professor. So I'm really excited for some of the insights I think you're going to bring to this conversation. Yeah, it's interesting because I look at it and like I'm still really good friends with one of my professors from grad school, Like, but he's not a professor anymore either. I think that the system is set up in a weird way, right, where it's not really built on what you've done. It's more really built on like, I don't know, like these pseudo achievements in a lot of way where mm-hmm. I think that you and I were kind of talking about a little bit in the beginning. When you look at kind of where the word masterpiece came from, it came from somebody working as an apprentice and things. This is your words, not mine. So I don't right. want to take credit for what you said. No, 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 all good. Well, do you want to tell us about that? And we'll kind of bring us into the idea of masterpiece and bring us back around. Yeah. So I think like education has always been somewhat about signaling, but historically it's been mostly about skills, right? So if you went back to early American history, someone like Benjamin Franklin was a printer's apprentice. And in order to become a printer in his own right, he had to come up with what was then called a masterpiece. And so he had to like publish this newspaper and he could have this one issue that he could take around to other people and say, look, I know how to do this job. And so part of that is the apprenticeship, which is where he developed the skills to be able to do that. And the other part was the masterpiece, the signal of those skills. The danger I think that exists in education today is I think we've tipped over in that balance where it's become much less about skills and much more about signaling. And this is why things like prestige matter so much more today than I think they ever have. And when you move into signaling so much, you end up with this sort of like ossification of like a caste and class society. I think is ultimately very harmful and certainly like contrary to how we ought to think about education in this country. It's interesting as well, because my wife and I have talked about this a lot, because we kind of went about schooling in different ways where like, she looked at it and she's like, well, I can go to community college for free for three years, and that'll kind of pay for me to then go to a great school for the last year so that I get that piece of paper from the right place. Mm. Whereas me, I'm like, oh, I got to make sure I go to the right schools and things like that. And, and the funny part is, is she uses much more of her education than I do. So I think that at the same time, like we're not Like you said, we're looking at what are we a member of, what caste or class or group are we a member of, rather than what information did I get that I can use. I think there needs to be a shift on like usable skills and things coming out of school rather than just where did you go. Right. And I think part of this is exactly what you just said, right? So like, for example, if I go to college and I go for four years and I'm a day away from completing my degree, but I don't complete my degree, the earnings gap between me and someone who went to school just one more day and got that degree is massive. 
inherently that's telling us something. What that's telling us is that the signal is a huge component economically of what's happening here. It's not just the skills. Otherwise, that extra year gap in earnings between someone who's completed three years of college and four years of college just would not be that big. And it is. So this is something I think we really need to think about. And it's also a little bit contrarian, right? I mean, it's very politically unpopular to say that the way we've structured education isn't working writ large. Yeah. But I think it is something that needs to be said because the sooner we admit some of these like depressing facts, I think the sooner it is that we can sort of get a handle on this and start to fix these issues. I mean, there's a reason we have such a big student debt crisis. And it's not because the education is so, so valuable. It's that we've been doling out these promises on how valuable this education really is. And essentially, we've been letting our students down. So I guess like looking at that, then when you look at kind of elite schools, because it's those ones are like people want to go to those mainly because of the name, not even because Mm -hmm. they're going to come out and say, I know how to do this better because I went there. It's like, I went to Yale or I went to Harvard. I went to other other schools and those schools actually take very few people. I remember like way back when I graduated, I went to the private high school, but the public school had two brothers that both got into Harvard in the same class. Like it was like a big deal because I guess it doesn't happen. And I guess when you're looking at it, like what is the problem that you see with elite schools? Yeah. So I think elite schools is super interesting to me intellectually because before I really like got into this book, I was always intellectually interested in this idea of like, what are all the things that are wrong with higher education? And that's actually a super broad question, although it might not seem like it, because there's a lot of different things that are going on in higher education. It's almost like someone who says they want to solve climate change. Well, it's really not so simple. You have to focus on like, where can you have the biggest impact, right? So like electric vehicles will be a part of that. Nuclear energy will be a part of that. And so we need different people to talk about different aspects of this. And so when I was thinking about, you know, what's exactly wrong with higher education, I quickly narrowed into what's wrong with elite higher education, right? Why are things like varsity blues happening? Where I went to high school, there was this massive scandal where a girl had said, who was a year older than me, that she'd gone to both Harvard and Stanford. And it turned out to be lies. And so like, what's driving students to engage in these types of toxic behaviors? Why are people so insecure about these things? These were the questions that really interested me. And the answers have sort of arrived on have to do a lot with market structure. It has to do precisely with what you're saying. Like, it's so hard to get into elite colleges today. And that's not a function of elite colleges. It wasn't always this way, right? Like, if you just go back 20 years, the acceptance rate at Princeton was something like 20%. Today, it's in the low single digits, rapidly approaching zero. So, Oh, it's single digits. That's impressive. I thought it was like going to be like <laughs> under 1%. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, they're pretty inclusive. <laughs> so this is something that's like gotten much worse in the last two decades. And that was really the question that interested me. And I think this is a deeply dysfunctional, broken market. As the title of my book might suggest... My argument is that the elite colleges basically act as a cartel in a whole host of ways. And so the economic logic of a cartel is to create scarcity because then prices will expand beyond whatever product they're selling is supplied. And that's what's happening in the elite college market. I mean, when you're sitting on a $50 billion endowment as Harvard and Yale are, it makes no sense for them to not go out and build new campuses in different parts of the country, but they don't do that. Like if a factory company had $50 billion in the bank, they'd be using it to build more factories. But Harvard and Yale don't want to do that. And if they're so good at teaching students, why don't they want to teach more? It's not even a purely economic question. And so all these like weird paradoxes. Yeah. And even like bringing into that as well, like I don't know as much of how the financing works because I didn't go to an Ivy League school, but I know like at least from my experience, when you look at even like student loans, right? Like they are able to absorb 
a higher cost because they're able to get these student loans that basically the government will give anybody just about anything. You know, if you want to start a business, they're not going to give you anything. But to go to school and can't guarantee you have a skill, they'll give you loans that you can't get out of even by bankruptcy. So I think at the same time, prices are also able to be inflated because there's more available money. And those endowments aren't going to students most of the time. They're going to building a new building. They're going to name after some guy that's probably going to get arrested in a few years. You know, there's a lot of these issues going on around that. Right. I mean, what you're talking about in terms of like the expansion of credit is certainly a part of why higher education costs so much. There's, I think, Reagan's Department of Education guy, Michael Bennett, famously published an op-ed where he proposed what's now called the Bennett Hypothesis, which is where he said, the more the government does to try and make education affordable, paradoxically, the more expensive education becomes. And part of the explanation for that, some other markets might be a little bit different, but at least in the college market, when you increase subsidies to students, what ends up happening isn't that the cost of college comes down, it actually goes up. And the reason that is the case is because, again, there's so much scarcity of seats that even if you artificially give students more money, the money ends up just being absorbed by the colleges and less institutional aid that they give to students and higher tuition prices. And so in all of these ways, there's an interesting study where I read that like 80% of Pell Grants gets captured just by the school, right? So for each dollar, only 20 cents of a Pell Grant gets to the actual student in terms of like increasing affordability. That's crazy to me. And so this super hyper wasteful system, and it's precisely because of this cartel structure on the supply of seats where there's been this like persistent stagnation where the top 25 schools have really not kept up with the growth of applications whatsoever. And they've sort of stagnated the number of seats that they have. And it's created this like massive scarcity that leads to things like varsity blues and people lying about getting in and people cheating to get in and cheating on the SAT and the ACT. I mean, all of these things are happening all the time. It's like whenever you open the newspaper, there's like a new story about one of these scandals. And this is the reason. It's because you have so much scarcity and there's so much money being pumped into the system. You're ending up with all these adverse and I think really toxic behaviors. So let me ask you this, because you're bringing up a few points that I didn't quite realize. I guess, number one, I guess let's kind of look at the cartel aspects of it first. Mm -hmm. How do they operate as a cartel? Like, what are they doing? Because like, I think of that, I think of like Teddy Roosevelt, like busting up trusts and stuff like that, and kind of like handling a lot of these people that are unilaterally operating. But how do colleges and universities act as a cartel? Cool. So I think there's two specific ways that are like really obvious that they act as a cartel, and one of which they're actually getting in legal trouble for. So let's start with seats, because I think this is like the area we've been developing throughout this conversation. So on seats, the way they act as a cartel is... And just for people that may not understand, seats, we're saying just like available places in class, right? But yeah, places in class, right? Enrollments. And so on seats, the way they act as a cartel is all of these elite colleges basically have a very interesting relationship with the US News and World Report, which is that there's this rankings that sort of serves as the barometer of progress. And the reason that's the case is because almost every single elite college is is organized as a nonprofit organization. And so there isn't a profit and loss statement at the end of the quarter for like the board of trustees or the president to say, we're doing a very good job, look at how much money we made. So instead, you end up with this sort of like softer metric of look at where we are in the rankings, we've moved up in the rankings, look at what a good job I'm doing, is what the president says to the board of trustees. Usually the boards of trustees at these universities are hyper interested in prestige for their own reasons, because they want to be associated with like a very prestigious what they would call charitable organization. And so you have all of these organizational incentives driving these universities towards prestige. Okay. Well, 
The elite colleges have historically and systematically protected the U.S. News and World Report in a couple of different ways. Number one, when the Obama administration tried to introduce a public competitor to those rankings, the elite colleges were at the forefront of lobbying to kill any such efforts. Number two, when the U.S. News and World Report sends out these surveys, all of these colleges, including the elite ones, fill out these surveys, they do the peer reviews, they do everything, and they give access to the U.S. News and World Report to not only the data, but also the credibility of being the only news source that gets access to this type of stuff. And the net effect of this is that you basically have this massive market share in the rankings market go to the U.S. News and World Report. Well, the impact of that is whatever the rankings incentivize the elite colleges to do is what ends up happening. The elite colleges Mm -hmm. change their spending priorities, their organizational priorities to sort of conform to whatever the rankings criteria reward. And one of the things that the rankings criteria have historically rewarded is selectivity, alternatively framed rejectivity, keeping class sizes as small as possible, definitely not expanding them and spending more money per student. And so you've created this cartel, which is what I call a hub and spoke Which is cartel. wild because you yeah. look at that and you feel like more money per student doesn't mean better education. Better education. It doesn't mean better coming out, but continue. At all. And that's precisely the point. And so what you've set up is this hub and spoke cartel where in the rankings market, the US News basically has a monopoly market share. And whatever they incentivize is what happens at the spoke level amongst all of these colleges. Now, any one of these colleges in a competitive market would want to increase its seats to steal away students from their competitors. But in this hub and spoke model, because they're not incentivized to increase expansion because of this rankings criteria, now all of them are getting super rejective. And by supporting the hub, by supporting the US News and World Report, they're locking themselves into this cartel and thereby creating all this system-wide scarcity, which ends up benefiting them because now when a billionaire wants to get his son in to one of these super hyper-prestigious colleges, because there's such a scarcity of seats, it costs him something like $10 million to get into Harvard. Whereas before, it wasn't anywhere close to that amount. And so you've created this really, really broken market on seats, which is, I don't know how you would describe it apart from describing as a hub and spoke cartel. Then the second area of cartel behavior, which is where there's been much more legal trouble for the elite colleges, is on this issue of price fixing. Mm -hmm. Price fixing in particular in the college market, I think is really interesting because language is used in such a way to hide that it's happening. And so Mm. colleges will often talk about meeting full demonstrated need or being need blind or financial aid as if this is some sort of charity. But financial aid isn't actually charity. What it is, is it's price discrimination. What they're trying to do is find exactly how much any given family can afford and charge exactly that much, which again is another indication of the sort of like market power that these schools have. Yeah. And the rest will just be like in a loan or money they have to find elsewhere or whatever it may be. Right. That's exactly right. And so what's happening actually on price fixing is historically before the 90s in the 60s, 70s, 80s, there used to be the Ivy League colleges and MIT would get together for a meeting they called the overlap meeting. And at the overlap meeting, they would pull basically a name out of a hat and Harvard would be like, I accepted John Smith. Who else accepted John Smith? And Princeton would raise their hand or maybe MIT would raise their hand. And then they'd directly collude on exactly how much financial aid they were both going to offer. And they'd offer the exact same amount. Are you serious? That seems like such a minute detail to pay attention to. Right. And they would do this on student after student. It was called the overlap meeting because they were colluding on overlapping admitted students. And so by fixing the financial aid prices, they were fixing the actual prices, right? Because again, 
the price you pay is the sticker cost minus the amount of financial aid you get. And so they're fixing prices. But because they were doing it on a case-by-case basis, it became hard for people to recognize that this is what was happening. Finally, in the late 1980s and early 1990s, the Department of Justice brought a case against the elite universities and said this is a violation of the Sherman Antitrust Act. You know, you can't fix prices in this way. And so colleges used Congress as a shield because they had a ton of sway with legislators at the time to enshrine into law an antitrust exemption for the elite colleges so that they could continue to fix prices. And this antitrust exemption, which is now known as Section 568 of the Improving America's Schools Act, gets renewed every seven years without fail. And in fact, it's going to get renewed this year. I think, frankly, they give up too many antitrust exemptions, by the way. It's crazy. Like Major League Baseball should not have an antitrust exemption. The NFL should not have an antitrust exemption. Colleges should not because you allow them to create behavior like this. This is absolutely right. And through regulatory capture, basically, they're evading all of the laws of the free market, right? I mean, why do we want free markets? Why do we want competition? We want it so that consumers, students get lower prices and better goods. Right now, we're getting higher prices persistently and arguably worse goods in what's going on in some of these campuses. And so this antitrust exemption, which continues to this day, has allowed for this sort of price-fixing conspiracy to continue. There's a group of schools called the 568 Presidents Group, which is led by Georgetown's Jack DeJoya, which routinely comes up with a consensus formula that they each use to determine how needy a student is and therefore how much financial aid they're going to offer that student. And because they all get the same data through these FAFSA forms, by colluding on that formula, they're colluding on prices. And so this is actually something that there's recently been a little bit of action on because there was a class action lawsuit filed in January against the elite colleges, which alleged that this is a violation of the Sherman Antitrust Act again. Now, the interesting thing about this case actually isn't They're not arguing that it would be illegal to fix prices under the antitrust exemption. What they're arguing is that the schools haven't qualified for the antitrust exemption. And the reasoning of the case is also really interesting because what they're saying is, remember, Section 568 says that you're allowed to fix prices as long as you practice need-blind admissions. And what the lawsuit is saying is, well, you're not practicing need-blind admissions because when someone can donate to get their kid in off the wait list, that's not need-blind. And so they're saying, therefore, you never qualified for Section 568, and therefore, you never qualified for immunity from these price-fixing lawsuits. Is that why we're seeing more like legal cases recently? I know there was like a lady that was on Full House a number of years ago, and then she went to prison recently for doing some stuff so her kids could do donations and stuff like that. Is that why they're pushing that more now, or is it just kind of happening to occur? I think like the system has gotten so broken that a lot of these types of behaviors are no longer evading scrutiny the way they once did, right? So like, I think you're referring to Lori Laughlin's daughter. Yeah, yeah, I couldn't remember her name. And the bribery at USC that they engaged in. That Varsity Blues scandal is sort of like an outgrowth of the Seats Cartel, which is when there's so much scarcity, then people like Lori Laughlin, who want to get their kids into prestigious colleges, turn to corruption because there's no way to just pay out, right, for what they want at the price point they want it. Right now, if they had $10 million to give to Harvard, they could illegally bribe their kid in off the wait list, but they didn't want to pay that much. And so they took these risks with these athletic coaches who sort of like pretended that all of these rich kids were like world-class athletes and tried to get them in through the back door. Unfortunately, they got caught. But I think Varsity Blues is, is a really interesting example of this. I think some of the rancor around the Harvard affirmative action case and sort of the racial resentment that's building up and because of how rejective these elite colleges have become 
is part of this story too. It's like, if there were more seats, that there'd be more seats for everyone. But when you create this sort of zero-sum tournament mentality, then people foster all sorts of racial resentments that build up in ways I think that are ultimately very adversarial to this nation's best interests. And so all of these ways, the scarcity that's been building up in the elite college market is hurting us so much. And this price fixing is downright criminal. And so I really hope that Congress repeals this exemption, Section 568. I think there's an opportunity to do so because it comes up for renewal in September. And so all they have to do is let it expire. But there's a lot that can be done to reform this market. I think this is the direction we need to be moving in. So let me ask you this then, Sahaj, because I think one of the problems is as well when you look at it, there's also the demand, right? There's a demand for like, well, I want to hire somebody that went to Harvard. I want to hire somebody that went to Yale. I want to hire somebody that went to Dartmouth. I guess, like, doesn't that have to be fixed too in order to solve this problem? Because then people are demanding they have to go there because they think it's kind of like their life's over if they don't get that school because that's what's going to be what gets them the job they think they're going to get in the future. Right. So this idea of like on the employers, I understand where employers are coming from, right? Which is we now live in a world where we have very diverse country. And so if you have two different applicants, how do you know who's good in the absence of some sort of signaling, right? I mean, going back to the Benjamin Franklin example before they could bring like this clock and be like, look, I know how to make this. You can test it out. And if you want to hire me, great. If you don't, I'll take my clock somewhere else. They can't really do that anymore. And a lot of these jobs, I guess why maybe we should. (laughs) Maybe we should bring that back. (laughs) Right. I think a lot of this also has to do with, and we were talking about this before this conversation, is we've sort of like oriented our entire economy around sort of producing these knowledge economy jobs. And there's very little vocational support, vocational training for more hands-on jobs. Things that, for example, Germany really spends a lot of time emphasizing. Things like metalworking, manufacturing, and these types of sort of hands-on technical jobs are much easier to prove through things like masterpieces, are much easier to move away from signaling and into skills. But in the knowledge economy, a lot of it has to do with signaling. It has to do with signaling sort of like the inherent intellect, the inherent industry, the inherent conformity of people who might end up becoming employees. And so I think that shift away from manufacturing and into pure knowledge economy jobs is sort of explained some of the employer attraction to these prestigious signals. I guess like looking at that then, you protested at Yale's graduation based on a lot of this happening. So what were you thinking and what kind of happened from that? Right. So I protested at two different graduations this year. The second was my own at Georgetown. The first was the one at Yale. And the reason for those protests was very simple. Georgetown, Yale, Columbia, Cornell, a bunch of other elite colleges are part of what is called the 568 Presidents Group. They fix prices. This is something I think is really, really bad. And just to quantify the impact this has, in a more competitive market, a recent lawsuit found, the average student would be getting $12,000 a year more in financial aid at these elite colleges. So that's a tremendous amount of money. I mean, over four years, we're talking about like $46,000, almost 50 grand. It's a non-trivial amount of money. And especially when we're talking about these massive debt crises and all this other stuff, it's like, why are we taking money from students who are middle-class, lower-class, working-class, and redistributing into the pockets of some of the wealthiest organizations, not only in America, but in the world. These endowments are massive. That's a whole nother can of worms too, man. Like our government funds banks and all these other things way too much. Like if they take a risk, they should have to deal with it. And like that money should be going other places. Absolutely. And so this sort of like redistribution and reverse class warfare, I think 
is so objectionable. And so that was sort of the reasoning behind some of these protests I did about Georgetown and Yale. So Yale, me, uh, my sister and some of her friends dressed up as Monopoly men and <laughs> at their graduation were handing out Monopoly money. And we had a balloon out there that we're flying sort of around their campus that said, Yale, stop fixing prices and so on and so forth. And I just think it's a message like this conversation is great because I get to talk about this, but how many people really know about 568? How many people really know about this? I, I didn't fixing? until this conversation. Right. It's something that has gotten so little attention. And yet, again, like I said, I mean, we're talking about tens of thousands of dollars a year that are basically being stolen from middle and working class students and being redistributed upwards. And so this is a very critical, important issue we were trying to bring attention to both at Yale and other places. Now, the interesting thing about those protests was you know, when Yale found out that we're coming to protest, they sort of called the mayor, they called the police chief, they called everyone in New Haven to try and stop us. They tried to make us get a new permit so that we couldn't fly our balloon. And there's all this like sort of pressure that Yale was able to bring up just because of how powerful they are in their both their local town and and also obviously nationally. And so I think like this sort of is the canary in the coal mine. Like these schools have gotten so powerful that they're suppressing even in some ways they're trying to suppress dissent about some of their practices. And there's no need for them to do this. I mean, honestly, when you have a $40, $45 billion endowment, why do you need to do this? You're, You're more saving... powerful than many countries, actually. Yeah. It's mind boggling to me. And I hope this is an area where people start to pay more attention because I think this is an area where fundamental economic questions, I think there is a lot of bipartisan consensus, right? Like I think everyone would agree price fixing is bad and everyone would agree that elite colleges shouldn't fix prices. I think these are areas where we can make political progress. So let me ask you this then, based on that, you are attending Columbia Law, the system's corrupt and then I guess why choose to be a part of it? Right. So my broader critique isn't that the elite colleges are worthless or that there's no value to attending or that there's nothing to be gained from getting an education there. In fact, I think many of the professors are very good. I think the colleges are very good. The issue I have with the elite colleges is there aren't enough seats and it costs too much. And those are my fundamental issues. It's like, how do we expand access so that more kids, not less, can go to elite colleges? And how do we lower the price so that more kids, not less, can afford elite colleges? And so those are the two areas that I'm really focused on. So mm -hmm. I know sometimes when you criticize an organization, people will say, okay, well, why do you participate? And I think it's actually more important to criticize the organization. I would be more concerned about like, I'm participating. Are they going to let me keep going here? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well. Hey, that guy's really loud. Get rid of him. <laughs> yeah. It's funny. When I was writing my application, I was speaking to this professor who works at Georgetown who wrote my letter of recommendation. And I was telling him about my book and sort of the ideas I was sort of throwing around. And he's like, I would tone all of this down in your law school application because no one's going to like you. <laughs> <laughs> that would be my concern, man. I'm very yeah. opinionated though, I will say. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, I mean, I didn't really hide any of this. My thinking was, look, it's my responsibility to tell the truth. If they don't want to take me, I'm sure there's someone who will. Yeah, that's the right viewpoint to have, man, because I think at the same time, like these ideas need to get out. They need to be challenged and we need to be looking at this or it just allows the problem to continue, right? Because then we just right. built a system that permits the problem and what you permit will continue and get worse. Right. I think the other really important point is the impact of this cartel sort of extends beyond this elite market. Because I think people can say, okay, only 2% of students go to elite colleges. What's the big deal? What about the other 98% of students? I think that's true. But the actual issue here, I think the broader issue is when the rankings are based on spending more per student. What ends up happening is a school like UVA, 
or a school like Michigan or a school like UC Berkeley now has to go and get more international students, more wealthy students from out of state to fill their classes so that they can up their revenues so that they can compete in the rankings with these elite colleges with these tremendous resources that they've gotten partly by fixing prices. And so when you end up with this really broken system at the top, it trickles down everywhere else. Tuition ends up getting more expensive at UVA, Michigan, UCB, and then that trickles down into the secondary tertiary market, trickles down into Virginia Tech and JMU and all these other schools, and then eventually even slowly down all the way to the community college level. And so the point is, yes, it's true that this is sort of like a very privileged area of lead education, but it's also true that this is having massive impacts on the rest of society which I think is another reason why we have to fix what's going on at the top so that we can stop this sort of like negative trickle down and contagion. So let me ask you this then, what can the average person do about this, right? You hear this problem that says, to me, it sounds like, wow, that's really big. This sounds overwhelming. Like what can the average everyday person actually even do about the situation? Yeah. So let's get as actionable as possible. Section 568, it's up for renewal in September. Write to your congressperson, write to your senator. And I've spoken to a lot of people on the Hill. A lot of them don't even know about this issue. In fact, I was just speaking to a, a congressman yesterday, sort of briefing them about this renewal. They had no idea it was up for renewal because there's so, so little Haj, debate I'll on I'll be issue. honest with you. Like, yeah. I'm a very politically aware person. I yeah. have been complaining about education for 10 years. I had no idea it existed. So that's a right. big problem. Yeah. And this is the problem when the lawmakers don't know what's in the bill and no one's talking about what's in the bill. That's how these types of things, you know, continue to persist. And so please, the number one thing people can do is go to breakthecartel.com. There's a petition there. It's a change.org petition. They can go ahead and sign that if they have the time. Please write to your senator, write to your Congress people, get this on their radar. Because I think if they know that this is actually an issue that people care about, there is no way it gets renewed off the bat, we're talking about tens of thousands of dollars that are now, instead of being redistributed from the working class and middle class up to these wealthy institutions, we revert to the normal economic gravity of this money flowing back into the middle class of more aspirational higher education, just off the bat by ending price fixing. So that's the really easy, concrete thing to do. On the seat stuff, I think like as voters, we need to pay a lot of attention to some of the plans that presidential candidates, Senate candidates... Congress people propose for higher education because I think sort of severing that link between the rankings and the colleges is all important in ending this sort of seat scarcity. Well, and I think it's also holding those politicians accountable too, because they pander. They pander to us because they say, oh, we're going to do this. We're going to do this. Oh, just kidding. You elected me. I'm going to do this. (laughs) So we have to hold them accountable, man. We absolutely do. That's right. That's absolutely right. So Haj, I've really enjoyed this conversation. So I know you write over at Substack in addition to a lot of other things you're doing. Where can people find out about you? Where can people grab the book? Okay, great. So the book is still making its way through the publishing process. I'll be releasing details on that soon. They can find me on Substack where it's sahajsharda.substack.com. And again, like I mentioned earlier, the number one thing that people can do to support this movement right now is go ahead and sign that change.org petition at breakthecartel.com. That's the most actionable way they can get involved and I think make their voice heard. If you're against price fixing, if you're against collusion, if you're against expensive higher education, please go ahead and sign that petition. Very cool. Well, Sahaj Sharda, thank you so much for hanging out with me today, man. Thanks, Jeremy. 